2 Peter 3.10, we pick up the text, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come. Now, there were people in chapter 3, verse 3, that were mockers, and they were mocking, following after their lust. Verse 4, chapter 3 says, they are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Here's the response. The day of the Lord will come. It is coming to a neighborhood near you. The day of the Lord will come. Now, whenever you hear God make a promise, what can you know? It is going to happen. The day of the Lord will come. Jesus Christ is coming, and it's going to be his day. Now, what does that mean, the day of the Lord? It's not necessarily a 24-hour day, but it means that man has had his day, and God is going to have his day. And when he does, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. Now, notice it says the, the way that the Lord will come. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, if you've ever had your house broken into, you know how thieves work, right? They try to come when nobody's home. We had an episode at our home a few years ago. Uh, Brenda and I were both at the church. My wife works at the church as well. She does the graphics for the church. We were both at work, and there was a guy. It turns out he was high on um, crack or something like that. And I think he was at least a two-striker at this point. And he was going around our neighborhood, and he was knocking on doors saying he was looking for work. But what he was really looking for was a house where nobody was home. He knocked on my neighbor's door across the street. My neighbor said, no thanks, I don't need anything. He then went across the street. My neighbor was watching him out of, our, out of his bay window. He knocked on our door. We weren't there. He went around into my backyard. He was messing around in my shed. My neighbor told me later that he gave him about a minute to see if he would come out. And he got a pickaxe out of my shed and started going around to a French door and trying to open the side door. So my neighbor called the police, and then he called us at work. And as he was working on the side door, I had a 120-pound dog on the inside. His name was Max. He was a half shepherd, half Great Dane. Sadly, he only lived to five years old. He was a great dog. And he looked kind of like Scooby-Doo. So I wanted to get some video to see what he was doing with this potential thief coming into the side door. Was he, <laughs> was he doing something like that? I don't know what he was doing. But anyway, the guy never got in. The police showed up. He told some weird story, and off he went into the police car. That was uh, an experience we had. You may have had something worse. There's thieves that try to, you know, there's pickpockets. There's people who try to sneak up and steal purses. And thieves, they try to be stealthy about what they do. They come when nobody expects it. Even like if you've heard home invasions before, they try to, you know, maybe catch somebody as they're walking in with groceries and that kind of thing. Well, the day of the Lord will come simile like a thief. It will be like a thief. And the question is to whom? I want to answer that question by taking you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A little bit back in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul has been dealing with the rapture at the end of chapter 4, he's talking about the Lord descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. This is chapter 4, verse 17. 
Then we who are alive and remain, this is at the coming of the Lord, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now in chapter uh, 5, he's talking about the timing of this event. He says, now as to the times, and remember there's no chapter breaks in the original letter, so the thought continues. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the what? The day of the Lord, that's our subject tonight, will come how? Just like a thief in the night. While they, and if you underscore your Bible, I would underline this, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs or travail or labor pains upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, now you want to underline the you there as contrasted with the they of verse 3. While they are saying, but you is emphatic to show a strong contrast to the fate of unbelievers with believers. But you, brethren, this is believers, are not in darkness that the day, what's that day? The context is the day of the Lord in verse 2, should overtake you like a thief. Now, the ones that will be overtaken like a thief are not believers. They are unbelievers. For believers, the second coming of Jesus Christ will not come like a thief in the night. It will come like a thief in the night to the unbeliever. The believer, according to Paul, will not be overtaken like a thief because we are not in darkness. We're not going to experience the dark day of the judgment of God. So we won't be overtaken like a thief. For you, believer, are all sons of light, verse 5, sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. This looks back to the day of the Lord. They will participate in the triumph of the great day, that is, the believer's will. The others belong to the night of darkness. That's the idea. Verse 6, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who do their sleeping... Do their sleeping at night. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, aren't you glad? But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the verses in verse 9 that makes it emphatic that believers are not destined for wrath. The day of the Lord is the wrath of God. Now, what I've been trying to share with you, and this is my view, is that there's a distinction to be made between tribulation and wrath. Tribulation in Greek is thlipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, and it means trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So the promise of Scripture is that we are not destined for wrath. The promise of Scripture is not that we are not destined for tribulation. In fact, we have a promise from Jesus that in this world we will have what? Tribulation. 
Now, I'm sure that most of you don't make that the verse of your day, right? Put it on your refrigerator. This is my verse today, right? Jesus said, in this world, I will have trouble. I'm standing on the promises today on the freeway. See, if you use this verse, nothing would shock you. But we use other verses, and I understand why, right? So a difference between wrath and tribulation. Tribulation simply means trouble. This world is filled with trouble as sparks fly up, right? We know there's going to be trouble. Now, some days are smooth sailing and other days are filled with trouble. The Bible has not told us as a Christian, you won't have trouble. The Bible says you won't experience God's wrath. And what we just saw is that the day of the Lord is not going to overtake the believer uh, as a thief. Now, the unbelieving world, here's some things that will happen before the day of the Lord. Go back to chapter 5, verse 3. The world will be saying peace and safety. Israel used to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. This will be kind of a mantra of the world. In the last days, they will be saying peace and safety, peace and safety. But what will happen? Then destruction will come upon them. How? Suddenly, like a thief. Like birth pangs upon a woman when it just hits her and all of a sudden she realizes she's entering into labor. That's the idea. All of a sudden the pain hits just like a thief tries to hit, you know, stealthily. That's what's going to happen to the unbelieving world. And they shall not escape. Luke 24 Excuse me, uh, Luke 21, 34 says, Be on guard that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, that the day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell upon the face of the earth. Unbelievers will be peace, say, saying peace and safety, but you, believer, verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, you're not in darkness that the day of the Lord should overtake you like a thief. What else will happen? Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Next book to your right. Look at verse 1. Things that will happen before the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that what? The day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come unless what happens? The apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, which I think everybody agrees is the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or every or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. We spent a few days in Jerusalem just last week, and uh, one of the things that shocks you about Jerusalem, among uh, many things, is the crowded nature of the city. In Tel Aviv, the population is 750,000. It's the second largest population in Israel. The first largest population is Jerusalem, which is about a million people crammed into that little city. 
tight quarters, a lot of people touring the area. But here's something that you see. When you look at what was once the Temple Mount, or what most agree is the area of the Temple Mount, there are two Muslim shrines sitting there. The one with the golden top is the Dome of the Rock. And there's another black one that's considered more holy in Islam. It's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is where they believe that uh, uh, Muhammad rode up to heaven on a horse. So this is what they, they kind of capture here. And it's a very controversial place. Well, if you're up on a rooftop and you're looking at the Temple Mount and you're there on certain days, there will be Muslim prayers that are happening and they'll be coming from the prayer towers. And to be candid with you, it's a bit of an eerie sound, especially when you're in Jerusalem. And for all those people who were first-time visitors to Jerusalem, they were a little bit shocked at the major Muslim presence that's there. And then there's all kinds of different churches there and a whole multitude of different people groups. Here's my point. Both, there was another lady in our fellowship and me who had hit us at the same time that a lot of what you see today and, and some of what you see if you go to the Holy Land is, is a bit of a bummer, to be quite honest. It's, 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 a, it's sad because you know what the nation could have been had they followed God. And much of what you see today, even though they're back in the land, is a result of one word. Here's the word. Unbelief. You could say disobedience, but disobedience and unbelief are almost synonymous in this case. And Israel has gone through a lot of what it's gone through because of unbelief. That's what Paul argues in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Unbelief costs you. Because without faith, it's impossible to what? To please God. You cannot please God without faith. He honors faith. And Israel wallowed in unbelief. And the ramifications, the consequences, can still be seen in the city and the country today. And it can still be seen in other places of the world today. There are places that are ravaged simply because of darkness, uh, satanic opposition, demonic activity in dark places. And sometimes it's even in houses where one house in a neighborhood is filled with light and the next house is filled with darkness. And a lot of it has to do with decisions made within those houses, within those lives. That's just the facts. So, there's another truth that I want to show you. It's in the book of Malachi. That's the Italian version of Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. It's in Malachi 4. It's the last chapter of the Old Testament. And we have something else that will happen before the day of the Lord. These are reasons why I believe believers will not be caught off guard. I do not believe that the day of the Lord is a signless event. What do I mean by that? I mean that there will be signs associated with the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord. Check out Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, verse 1, Malachi 4, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will arise or will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, Malachi 4.3. You will tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. 
on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. What's your Bible say? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, it's interesting when Jews celebrate the Passover. If you turn over to the book of Joel, let me explain. When Jews celebrate the Passover, Joel's a little bit back, they leave something called Elijah's cup. What's that? If you've ever been part of a Seder Passover meal, Elijah's cup is set out. There's an empty space at the table in expectation that Elijah, the prophet, may knock at the door of that home, show up, drink a cup of wine, and announce the coming of the Messiah. The first Elijah-type ministry was fulfilled by John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's Luke 1.17. And what did John do? He announced that Jesus Christ had come. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, right? Get ready. The Messiah is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal, right? He said, I'm going to prepare your hearts with a baptism of preparation, a baptism of repentance to get ready to receive the Messiah. Well, the Bible says in Malachi 4 that Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord did not happen at the first coming of Jesus Christ. So Elijah will come, and in Revelation 11, we studied the two witnesses, and we made an argument that one of them is Elijah, based upon this verse and some other verses. So this is going to happen. And then the book of Joel. Look at something else before the day of the Lord. This is Joel 2.28. It will come about after this, Joel 2.28, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky, on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. What's your Bible say? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, notice, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. There are signs associated with the coming of the day of the Lord. The return of Elijah Cosmic signs in the sky. The world saying peace and safety when there is no peace and safety. The man of lawlessness being revealed. An apostasy that will happen. So we have a multitude. I named at least five things that are associated with the coming of the day of the Lord. This is why I would argue that believers will not be caught off guard like unbelievers will. Unbelievers will suddenly go into destruction, not believers. They will not be caught off guard. Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Noah built the ark. What was the world doing? Eating, drinking, 
buying, selling, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day, listen to that, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came, this is Jesus speaking, and swept them all away. It will be just like the days of Lot. Lot was in Sodom. The angels literally pulled his family out. They said, we can't destroy this city until you exit stage left. They pulled him out and then fire and brimstone rained from God. They were out, judgment came. And these are the, the uh, examples that are used by Jesus. The door of the ark was shut and the flood came. Lot went out with his wife and daughters and fire and brimstone came. Out go the people of God. Down comes the judgment of God. Everybody with me? Those are the examples that Jesus used. And we're supposed to remember Lot's wife because what did she do? She looked back and she probably got swept up in the judgment. And it's interesting. This is in the area of what's called the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea now has 30 plus percent mineral content. There's a lifeguard posted at the Dead Sea who will not allow you to stay in the water beyond 15 minutes. 15 minutes in the Sea of Salt or the Dead Sea, you come out with baby smooth skin. Ah, you're kind of shining. But if you stay longer than 15 minutes, it will suck the life right out of you. The lifeguard is posted to time you. I think they have a timer there. He will not allow you to go beyond 15 minutes because you'll get dehydrated and it will take the life right out of you. They have a salt formation, many salt formations in the area, one of which they call Lot's wife. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. It's a really weird thing because when you're driving along the area, kind of the coast of the Dead Sea, you look off to your left and you see white things, and they almost look like buoys in the sea, which is, I guess, technically a lake. But they're actually all salt formations. There's so much salt in the water. And this, this is uh, another of the interesting examples that Jesus gave. Now, when this day of the Lord comes, 2 Peter 3, this is what's going to happen. 2 Peter Chapter 3. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away, verse 10, chapter 3, with a roar. The heavens are going to pass away when the day of the Lord comes. Now, Pastor Chris mentioned not the abode of God, but the atmosphere, if you will, the current. Remember, God made the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God made what? The heavens and the earth. What he made, he is going to destroy. He is going to wipe them out. They, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed. The Greek word is luo, to literally loosen with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Note verse 10, the heavens, the elements, and the earth are all going to be burned up with intense heat. 
This second cataclysmic judgment is not by water. It is by fire. Both are scary prospects, right? A worldwide flood is a scary prospect. Worldwide fire is a scary prospect. How many of you have ever gone through a fire before? Ever had a fire in your property? When I was growing up, the neighborhood behind our back fence, the house caught on fire. And uh, it was early in the morning, two, three in the morning. And we were peering out the back of our home. I, I must have been seven or eight years old. And this house was on fire and the windows were breaking because of the intense heat of the flames. And the two guys, they were both young men, probably in their early 20s, came running over to our house in their boxers because they thought our house was on fire. I don't know if it's because we were screaming or what, <laughs> but it was their house that we were concerned about. So I remember we were in the backyard spraying our back fence, trying to keep the fire from coming into our home. Fire is a scary thing. And that, that's a localized fire, or we've had the fire sweep through Southern California. Well, when the day of the Lord comes, the heavens, the elements, and the earth and its works, verse 10, are going to be burned up. There's going to be a roar. One writer says the equivalent of the swish of an arrow, the rumbling of thunder, the crackling of flames, the screams of a lash. As it descends, the rushing of mighty waters, even the hissing of a serpent are captured in the word roar. He says, in essence, the canopy with an immense roar will roll up like a rattling window blind when one loosens its grip on it, and they will perish. See the word pass away? It's a Greek word that means perish or to pass by or to neglect. The word for the elements there is a Greek word, sometimes referring to elemental spirits in other passages, but here to the very elements of the universe. It would appear that everything that God made in terms of the matter of planet Earth related to the solar system, the heavens, and so forth, the earth, will all pass off the stage. God will consume it with intense heat. Can you imagine what that might look like? Can you imagine the cataclysmic judgment that this is? Can you imagine the power it must take to not only create all of this, but to destroy it? Well, that's what God's going to do. God is going to destroy all of these things. The planet is going to be purged by fire. In verse 6 of 2 Peter 3, it says, Though through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water, 2 Peter 3, 7, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for what? For fire, kept for the day of judgment, that's the day of the Lord, and destruction of ungodly men. And so now we have more detail to verse 7. The world being reserved for fire and what's going to happen. It is going to be dissolved. This is the book of Isaiah. And I'll tell you what, let's turn there. This is an important passage. Isaiah 34. If you don't want to turn there, just listen to it. Isaiah 34, verse 1 says... Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear. Isaiah 34, 1. The world and all that springs from it. 
For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter, 34.3. So their slain will be thrown out. Their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven, 34.4 of Isaiah, will wear away. If you have a King James, it says will be dissolved. New King James say, says the same, shall be dissolved. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. If you skip down to verse 8 of chapter 34. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for what? For the cause of Zion. What's Zion? We've been learning about it in 2 Samuel. It's the mountain of Israel. It's actually, Zion is considered the place for the Temple Mount, the place where David set up shop and made his capital. God is going to work again in Israel. Take it to the bank. Even his judgment in Isaiah 34 is connected to the cause of Zion. Unmistakably, that's Israel. That's the people of Israel who, of course, come to their senses in the last days. And so if you want to write this down, Revelation 6 says the same thing. It says the sky, verse 14, will split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. This is the sixth seal judgment in Revelation 6. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. I've been trying to share with you that between Revelation 6, uh, which is the sixth seal, you have Revelation 8.1, which is the seventh seal. In between, you have Revelation 7, which is the sealing of the 144,000, the appearance of the great multitude. That's where I believe the rapture takes place, between the sixth and seventh seals. I believe that the bulk of Daniel's 70th week is tribulation. The day of the Lord comes near the end of the tribulation. That's when the judgment of God actually comes, in my view. And this is, of course, debated. And that's when I believe the church is rescued and then the judgment comes. We're not appointed to wrath, but not spared tribulation. Now, Peter's going to ask a question in verse 11. He says, 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, this includes your automobiles, <laughs> your golf clubs, your favorite shoes, your favorite jacket, scarf, you name it. It's going up in smoke. Everything that we see now, that so much value is put on, literally is going to burn. And what you're going to want to know in that day is simply this. Is the Lord God your shield? Because you're going to need a pretty good fire suit on that day. Would you agree? It says all the elements, the heavens, the earth, its works, the disobedient who will not obey the gospel, everyone. Well, this is the question. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, the way just described in verse 10, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let me just ask you the question. Since you know that this is how the planet will end, this will be the end of the age, which will signal a new beginning. So don't, don't be too worried. You're, gonna, you're on the winning team. God is your shield. You're not going to be here for that intense judgment because we're not appointed to what? To wrath. So we're going to be rescued by the Lord before the wrath comes. Sodom and Gomorrah is a perfect example. Lot was rescued before fire and brimstone rained. He was taken out. We cannot judge this place until you're gone. Same thing at the end of the age. So, so don't get uh, nervous or fearful about that. But here's the question. Since all the things that so much is invested in, and I'll mention, for example, there's people concerned about climate change. There's people concerned about certain animals and stuff. And look, I believe we should be good stewards of the planet. But I believe that a lot of what's discussed these days and the money spent on it, in many ways, is a waste of time. That's my personal opinion. So much stock is put in that instead of in the heart. You know, we would have real change in this world if people actually followed the Lord. Don't you agree? That's where the change is actually going to come. So let me ask you, since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way and the day of the Lord will come. We, we all said amen. What God says is going to happen. And then the next verse says, well, since it's going to happen, how should you respond to it? Great question. Isn't it inconvenient when application comes our way? We're just studying eschatology, man. You mean we got to deal with application too? Yep. Since the Lord is going to do this, how should you be living your life? How then shall we live? What sort of person, make it personal, ought you to be? Well, it says you should be holy, end of 11. Greek word hagias. The essence of holiness means to be set apart. To be set apart for God in this world. That's what holiness is. Holiness is living out the life of God in the face of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. If you're a Christian, you've been set apart for God. That's what holiness is. Be holy, First Peter says, I think it's verse 16 or 17, chapter one, for I am holy. Reflect the character of your creator. That's holiness. Holiness is reflecting the character of your creator. God calls you to holiness. Now, holiness is not the clothing you wear. It's not the places you go per se. Holiness has to do with conduct, life. Whose life is filling you up? Whose priorities do you live out? Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, shouldn't you live a holy life? That's what Peter's asking. 
The second word there is conduct, anastrophe. It just means behavior. I think we all get that. And the last word is godliness. It's Eusebia. The word godliness speaks of a God-dominated life. Godliness and holiness are very similar. It means to reflect the character of your creator. It means to be like him. Do you know that God is doing a work to make you holy? You've all heard the, the idea of the uh, silversmith who keeps scraping away the dross on a vessel until he sees what? His own reflection in it. That's what God's doing in your life. That's why it hurts so much sometimes to look in the mirror, to realize, man, I fall short of being what God wants me to be. And so 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared yet as what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 1 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as God is pure. That's a pretty radical mandate. Do you want to be different? Do you know how many young people are trying to be different today? I'll put a blue streak in my hair. I'll, I'll do something. Hey, if you want to do that, that's cool. But look, if you want to be different, how about daring to be like a Daniel? How about living a holy life and not doing everything that every other person is doing in the world? That's often what holiness is. It means to be set apart unto God. Now, what are we to be doing? We are to be looking, verse 12. We are to be looking for and hastening. We'll come back to that. The coming of the day of God. The day of God is just another way to say the day of the Lord because God is the Lord on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, we're to be holy because we are looking for something. We are looking or living in the light of the day of the Lord. And because of that, we look for it. We are looking for the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because when he appears, we, will, we are told, look up, for your redemption draweth near or nigh. When he comes, if you're a believer here and you experience this, what are you going to be saying? Yeah, baby. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Right? Unbeliever? Uh-oh. You're going to be saying, oh, yeah, they're going to be saying, uh-oh. It's just that simple. What does it mean, hastening the coming of the day of God? Well, an honest rendering of the Greek word, it does speak of speed. It also could mean to await something eagerly or desire it earnestly. Can we speed up the second coming of Christ? This would be a debated subject based upon your view of the end time. The Bible does say God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. So do we have any say in that day? I personally say no. But there are some who say 
the more we do evangelism, if that last person can just get saved, then God will wrap up the times. But I'm not sure that God is bound to our evangelism efforts. If he were, I think things would be flipped around and we'd be in control and God wouldn't. I think God has fixed a day because he can't learn anything. So he's omniscient, he already knows. So whatever your view is, here's the thing. In some way, our lives have end times significance. You and I should be living for what will truly last. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? People will be our crown on that day. We are living in the light of his return. And there will be mockers who mock this idea. And the Bible just told us in the same chapter, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. But I could care less. Because I want to add as many people to my crown as possible so I can lay it at his feet. Would you agree? So how are you adding to your crown? Do you believe in the second coming? Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? It should have an impact in your life. See, it's according to his promise. It's not according to some preacher, but according to his promise, says Peter, verse 13, that we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now remember, the purging precedes the renewal. You're going to have to have a purging. How do you think you're going to get new heavens and new earth if the first heavens and earth don't go away? We all want new heavens and a new earth, but they're not going to be side-by-side neighborhoods. The old heavens and old earth are not going to remain for those guys over there. The first heavens and first earth must pass off the stage to get new heavens and new earth. Amen? So here's the thing. There are some scholars that believe that the new heavens and new earth come at the end of the millennium, the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. But I would just say, logically, I wonder how that will work because how are you going to have new heavens and new earth at the end of the thousand years Aren't you going to need new heavens and new earth at the beginning of the thousand years? Because the old heavens and earth are going to be what? Burned up. And it seems like from the language that they're going to be burned in their totality. Can you imagine the millennial reign of Christ where the lion and wolf lie down together and there's all this beauty and, you know, all this wonderful life and then there's charred ash everywhere? (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that's what's going to happen. Now, I, I will tell you that good scholars go back and forth on this, and I've seen some compelling verses that could go both ways. But let me just give you a quick summation from my notes. This is from Isaiah 65 and 66. I'm just going to encourage you to study it on your own, but let me read a summation. The chronology of Isaiah 65 and 66 clearly teaches, I'm quoting somebody else, that the heavens and earth will be renovated before the millennium begins, not at its end. There's no justification for changing the chronology of those two chapters. Isaiah wrote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, Isaiah 65, 17. Compare 2 Peter 3, 13, where the same expression, new heavens and new earth, is used. Following the creation of the new heavens and new earth, a partial listing of millennial blessings is given. Jerusalem will be restored, Isaiah 65, 18, and 19. Life expectancy will be expanded, Isaiah 65, 20. Men will build houses and inhabit them, Isaiah 65, 21, and 22. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, Isaiah 65, 25. The new heavens and the new earth, of which Isaiah speaks, uh, are renovated, or if you want to say recreated, it would seem before the millennium begins. This is not something to uh, worry too much about. God knows what he's going to do. But it would seem to make sense, based upon what we've been reading, that we're to look. If you watch the, the order of verses 12 and 13. We're to look for the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed. So we're to look for that, that second coming where judgment comes. And then we're to look, verse 13, for what? New heavens and a new earth. So it would seem that from 12 to 13, they're back-to-back things that we're to look for. New heavens and new earth following the day of God. And so this place, this new order of things is a place where righteousness will dwell. Today, we don't have a whole lot of righteousness. Today, we hear more and more about corruption in places that we would hope there would be trust. Today, we get disappointed left and right by people that we respected or institutions that we may be honored that have gone sideways. And it's sad. And sometimes we look for righteousness and we say, where is it? Isaiah 45, 22 through 25 says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. Will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. All who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Flip over to Revelation 21. Just a little bit to your right, Revelation 21. The new heavens and new earth are mentioned here. And here's what it says. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21.1, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. 21.2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, much of that having to do with pain and unrighteousness. Their eyes shall no longer, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, or if you like, the first order of things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making what? All things new. He said, I'm going to destroy all things. 
and I'm going to make all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. This is what God is going to do. And so Peter, back to 2 Peter 3, last verse for tonight, sums it up with the word therefore. This is 2 Peter 3, 14. He says, therefore, beloved, 2 Peter 3, 14. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, do you, do I? Be diligent to be found by him, if I could add, in that day. How do you want to be found in that day? In peace, having peace with God, spotless and blameless. I think we're spotless and blameless because of grace, of course, but we also want to be spotless and blameless in our conduct. Jesus asked a question in Luke 18, 7 and 8. Here's what he said. Just to get to the point, it's verse 8, Luke 18. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus asked that question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find believers? Will he find people of which Peter spoke to be at peace, spotless and blameless? A pastor had been on a long flight between church conferences. The first warning of the approaching problems came when the sign on the airplane flashed on, fasten your seatbelt. The last leg of our journey, 14 hours on an airplane, that sign went on quite often. And uh, that means you can't move around, you can't stretch your legs, you just got to ride out the turbulence. After a while, a calm voice said, we shall not be serving the beverages at this time as we are expecting a little turbulence. Please be sure your seatbelt is fastened. As the pastor, pastor looked around the aircraft, it became obvious that many of the passengers were becoming apprehensive. This is where uh, people's prayer lives improve on an airplane, right? And people ask deep theological questions like, if it's the pilot's time to go, does it mean that everybody else on the plane's time to go? Is time to go? Answer that for me, preacher. I don't know. Just hope it's not the pilot's time to go when you're on the plane. Later, the voice on the intercom said, we are so sorry that we are unable to serve the meal at this time. The turbulence is still ahead of us. And then the storm broke. The ominous cracks of thunder came could be heard above the roar of the engines. Lightning lit up the darkening skies, and within moments, the great plane was like a cork tossed around a celestial ocean. One moment, the airplane was lifted on terrific currents of air. The next, it dropped as if it were about to crash. The pastor confessed that he shared the discomfort and fear of those around him. He said, as I looked around the plane, I could see that nearly all the passengers were upset and alarmed. Some were praying. The future seemed ominous. Many were wondering if they would make it threw the storm. And then suddenly I saw a little girl. Apparently the storm meant nothing to her. She had tucked her feet beneath her as she sat on her seat. She was reading a book and everything within her small world was calm and orderly. Sometimes she closed her eyes, then she would read again, then she would straighten her legs. But worry and fear were not part of her world. When the plane was being buffeted by the terrible storm, when it lurched this way and that, as it rose and fell with frightening severity, when all the adults were scared to half to death, the marvelous child was completely composed and unafraid. The minister could hardly believe his eyes. 
It was not surprising, therefore, that when the plane finally reached its destination, all the passengers were hurrying to disembark. The pastor lingered to speak to the girl whom he had watched for such a long time. Having commented, uh, commented about the storm and the behavior of the plane, he asked why she had not been afraid. The child replied, because my daddy is the pilot and he's taking me home. There are many kinds of storms that buffet us, physical, mental, financial, domestic. Many other storms can easily and quickly darken our skies, throw our plane into apparently uncontrollable movement and turbulence. We have all known such times. Let us be honest and confess that it's much easier to be at rest when our feet are on the ground than when we're being tossed around in the middle of the sky, thousands of feet above land. But let us remember that our daddy, our father, is the pilot. And we have nothing to fear. He will get us all the way home. And the day of the Lord will come. And it will come like a thief, but not for you if you know Christ. And I don't know if we'll be that generation. There's a lot of generations that thought they would be and they weren't. There's only going to be one generation that sees this time. But here's what I know. I'm going to be with my Lord. He is my shield, my refuge, my God, and my strength. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is a light to our path, brings us hope and encouragement, and it is sobering. Certainly this small little section we tackled tonight is is not uh, the most comforting for especially for those who don't know Christ. But for those of us who do know you, Lord, we're going to have some turbulence, but we're going to make it all the way home. And in that place, when there are new heavens and new earth, when the world that you intended is restored back to its original state without sin, without death, without sorrow, without pain, without tears, when we are together again in your presence, looking on your face, Rejoicing in the things that you have made. Well, that is going to be a time when all of this is going to be nothing. Our light and momentary affliction is nothing compared to the weight of glory that's coming. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are unseen are eternal. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're listening to my voice, whether it's on the video or the computer or the radio, and you don't know that Christ is your captain, your pilot, you don't know if you have your ticket punched for heaven because you haven't met him. Well, it's been punched in the blood of the lamb and you must reach out and grab it. He's going to ask you to change. He's going to ask you to turn around, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in him, to stop living like the world, to be more like your creator. You know, you're going to find some unexpected and amazing joy in worship, unexpected and amazing joy in evangelism, unexpected and amazing joy in his word, in his presence. There's nothing like the Lord. There's no one more beautiful, no one more powerful, no one more satisfying 
No one more good or loving. The world, you can be a temporary hero here, but the world one day will kick you to the curb and spit you out and be done with you. But God, his love never gives up. He will never give up on you. Don't give up on yourself or your faith. If you need to make a recommitment to Christ tonight, do some business with him before this evening ends. This is your time. Lord Jesus, just cry out to him. Come into my life. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I want to follow you. I believe in your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. And I, I want to be your follower. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Lord, for those who are crying out in the name of Jesus, I pray you'd touch them. Pray that you would meet physical needs in this building tonight. Extend your hand of healing to those who need healing. Extend your hand of provision to those who need provision. For those who are a little unstable tonight, for whatever reason, maybe they're just going through some tough times, may you steady them in the storm. And may you just wash over your people tonight. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.